All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, dude? You know, just hanging out and doing my thing, Josh. I've been like look, looking for jobs and applying for jobs like crazy and like trying to find something, something better than what I got, but what I got's kind of not too bad so it's it, like up until recently there wasn't a lot of fire to start doing it so mm, right on cool well i've i've been in the midst of uh packing season we moved yeah. tomorrow morning and so got a ginormous u-haul truck today loaded up a bunch of stuff into it actually marty do you know you want to take a guess at what the first thing i loaded into the u-haul truck was it's the most important thing i could have put in there well, I know you moved your books with your car because that was too important to even go in. <laughs> Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. <laughs> False. Um. <laughs> That's what I used to prop up the ramp because my driveway is kind of tilted. That's so, a good use for that would, book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna guess your I'm gonna guess your 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 beer making supplies. Ah, no, actually not. That that I should have done that. But no, I put all my hockey gear in first. Okay. That way. I was gonna guess that. I was gonna oh, guess hockey stuff. Perfect. I wish Dang. I said it. I know. I should have asked you. That's what we should have done. <laughs> that's, that's the problem is with someone like Josh that likes a, like a couple things all like at like the same level. Same is level, that like when right. he's like, hey, like, which thing do you think I care about the most? And it's like, well, you care about all these things equally. And <laughs> so I don't know what to say. Yeah. I thought we weren't supposed to talk yet, really. But then Dan said it's something. okay. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, we, which is nice because now we can just be like, "Oh, hey, there's some other voices." Yeah. So, uh, listeners, one of those voices you may recognize if you've been hanging out this for any time, and that is the voice of Dan Koch. Dan, welcome back. Your third Thank you time for having here. Me. And the third new time. voice, though, is sorry, Concepcion. Did I say your last name right? Let, think about it. Did it rhyme so, with scary? Sari, <laughs> I got first the first part right. Sari, scary. <laughs> what about the last name? Sari Martin Concep- Concepcion. Concepcion. Boom. Yeah. Boom roasted. <laughs> nice. Welcome. I did my best. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll start with Sari since she's the first time guest. 
Um, Siri, who are you? What do you do? That's a deep question. Um, (laughs) Who am I? What do I do? Um, I, where do I begin? I am a theologian and writer and filmmaker. Um, And my day job is working for a organization that does grant projects at the nexus of faith and the sciences. So a lot of projects that integrate faith and science. So I do communications and uh, content development for that nonprofit. Um, I got a master's in theology from Fuller Seminary a few years back, did a focus on like theology and the arts, that kind of stuff, theology and culture. Um, Yeah. And I got some side hustles that, don't make me any money, which is uh, what we're here to talk about today. A little website Dan and I put together, and then as well as some filmmaking and writing projects I do on the side. Nice. That sounds great. Well, hey, we Marty, have a question. Yeah. Before she answers that question, I want to tell you a fun fact about Sari that I learned recently. Okay. I listened to uh, an episode that you guys did on Bad Christian. Marty, do you know who Rob Zombie is? Yeah. <laughs> ask ask uh, ask Siri if she knows who Rob Zombie is. How do you know? How do you know who Rob Zombie is? <laughs> um, well, because I'm more human than human. <laughs> no, I uh, I worked for Rob for ten years. I oh, wow. um I was in I was in the music industry for ten years as a manager, and the the management firm I worked for are definitely our mean potatoes client. Um. The shot caller was Rob Zombie, and we produced his films as well as managing his music career and whatnot. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a good experience. Awesome. Yeah. Kind of makes sense that we're friends, Siri, because man, like I basically became an adult having a manager to help me and like hem me in in certain ways. I mean, now I had four of them over time. They, it wasn't one consistent manager. Right. But I, I do well with that kind of influence to bounce things off of it's making sense. <laughs> so now I'm your manager. <laughs> no, well, of course not. But like, you know, I, uh, I, yeah. So I do better having had that, having yeah. had that kind of formation in my adulthood. Yeah, yeah. Jaffrey, yeah. my wife is basically my manager for all things domestic. <laughs> I don't think she appreciates. <laughs> Well, that's that's really cool. That's like a super cool thing because obviously Rob Zombie is not a small potato in the in like the last thirty years of the music industry. So um, that's no, that's, I learned that's a time. lot, and that's it was big. a really good experience. And Rob was a great great client and a great guy, and and good to work with, and uh, and not scary. And I'm still waiting <laughs> for my intro, Sari. I don't know how long we have to be friends, but I want to meet that guy. It's been a few years since I talked to Rob. Well, maybe, maybe, birthday. maybe you aren't allowed to say this, but is Zombie really his last name? Or are you, or are you not allowed to say that? Like, I can you, definitely say that. I'm pretty sure it's on Wikipedia. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny though. I did have one time I was with him doing a round of like interviews, like doing a bunch of press around a project. And so on, and so on, a journalist asked him that if, if that was his real name and he took out his, uh, his personal credit card out of his wallet and handed it to her. And, um, you know, he's legally changed his name to Robert Wolfgang Zombie. 
And, you know, the LLC that he'd formed that was also on the credit card was the amazing Dr. Satan. <laughs> so everyone got a kick out of that. <laughs> that's but, that's um, awesome. That's so yeah. Cool. Originally, he was born Robert Bartley Cummings. Okay. That's on Wikipedia. Didn't I got to say, White Cummings just does not have the same uh, <laughs> zing to it. It has a yeah. very different zing. It seems, seems like a very different kind of music career. Yeah. Uh, or maybe a different uh, sector of the entertainment industry. <laughs> right. Altogether. Yeah. I, I could imagine like 90s MTV and like the, the credits of the song come to the bottom left of the corner and it's like, you know, Robert white Cummings, you know, and it's like, Oh, that's not, that's not the person I thought this was. That'd be very interesting. So, <laughs> but that was old school. Well, um, so Sari, this is a question. We don't ask everyone about Rob zombie that comes on the podcast. Um, but we do ask everyone that comes on who their favorite hockey team is. I knew you guys were going to do this and it's so bad. Cause I just really don't have a lot of personal connection to hockey. But you know who loves hockey? Robert Zombie. And wow. <laughs> and I know he uh, he used to go to Kings games and because I'm from LA, I'll just have to go with the with the Kings. Nice. That's that's actually I think out of the last 3 episodes we recorded, that's two Kings fans out of oh, yeah? 3. Propaganda was the other one last week he said. He said the Kings because he's from LA, so that makes a lot of sense. But uh the, the only other question we have that we like to ask is, what would you think is the most important aspect of your faith that you've had to rethink? Mm. Most important. Um, that is a good question. And I would say that Okay, so I, I think issues around human sexuality were, were really big for me and very anxiety-inducing because it had to do with my relationships and this tension I felt where, you know, I, I affirm that we're supposed to love people like Christ, but I'm also supposed to, like, um, you know, judge this aspect of your life or say, like, oh, this, is, this aspect of your life is keeping you from a true relationship with God or whatever. So rethinking that and sort of changing my thinking and becoming convinced of being, you know, LGBTQ affirming and that that wasn't incongruent with my idea of the gospel or that God is love. That was like a big deal for me. But I think the things that are most important, I'm just thinking this now as you asked me, so it's very off the cuff, are still kind of in development. So I'm still thinking about what what to call or define salvation. And um, I mean, I'm totally, I'm like a Christian universalist, but, <laughs> but like, what do we mean when we use these terms? How do we like reinvent them in a, like a, in a more positive way, in a more true way. Um, and also Jesus, like the idea of like Christology, like who Jesus was, what he did and how to, you know, things, issues around Christology and atonement are still buzzing around for me and a little bit stressful in the background. <laughs> yeah. Just, just last night, somebody messaged me on Instagram or, or something and asked me, said, I'd like to ask you this question. What exactly did Jesus save us from? And I wrote back, like, that's a great question. I am still very much thinking about that. 
did you listen to the first, uh, did you listen to the atonement theories episode? <laughs> I kind of, I kind of punted. And I said, yeah, I mean, the, uh, make sure at least, you know, I could point you to this, but I don't really know what I think about that. And it's like, a, it's, it's an interesting question that is very open for me still. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's good. That, uh, I mean, those are ones that I still, you know, throw around consistently. Christology, uh, who is this Jesus guy? Especially because I'm like pretty big on like a Jesus-centered theology and hermeneutics. But the question that that begs is like, okay, but what Jesus? <laughs> yeah. You know, like what, what Jesus are we talking about here? And then just atonement constantly. And I, I mean, the atonement. Atonement, thing- atonement constantly should be the name of your new spinoff podcast. <laughs> and there we every go. episode is about atonement only. Sweet. We just I think- do a hundred episodes on atonement. It'll work. Yeah, We'll do it. And it'll all <laughs> end with that's... me being like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that, um, that makes me think of is, wait, I lost my thought in the middle of, cause I had two parallel thoughts. You're thinking about the pilot episode of atonement constantly. And then that led. Well, me to I, about... I was thinking about the theme music actually, that it would just be yeah. like, driving like chunky guitar sound like (laughs) yeah and you're like what is the atonement (laughs) anyway do we can workshop that we can maybe do a little better okay move on we can i'll I'll think of it do you remember what you were going to say or is it gone no not really let's josh back to you back to you josh all right sweet well uh oh i've got it oh sorry drop it like it's hot the bad atonement theories and the really violent ones and penal substitutionary atonement and all that kind of stuff it is so huge in the like evangelical theological imagination that it makes it even harder i think to get to something new and positive because i default to it still even after being like submerged in like thinking of other conceptions of it but it's like so salient in the thinking of like the blood you know and the sacrifice and the old testament sacrificial you know i spent so much of my life thinking that way that it is like so hard to like untangle that from my theological imagination so i don't know how you do that maybe it just takes a long time yeah i think uh probably forever I know that's not great, but like, I just am kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Something happened. It was great. And uh, Jesus yeah. is cool. Thumbs this up. might be, I'll keep this very brief, but it might be interesting. I, I think that in my thinking, when I do think about atonement these days, I think what I'm trying to do is kind of start from scratch a little bit and, and change it from a top down uh, model of like, okay, there was this sin and death and there was this curse or there was this whatever up at up at the top over everybody that God acted on with Jesus. And then that trickles down to us, whatever was done up top. Uh, Not that that's false. I don't, I don't necessarily reject the idea of God doing something that trickles down to us. um, For instance, creating the universe that we get to enjoy, but I've been, I think I'm more interested in uh, thinking about it bottom up. So starting with like, okay, so, the reason that Christianity exists today in, you know, at least one of the big reasons and probably a completely necessary condition for its continued existence is that people experience salvation through it. And so starting with the question, what are people experiencing? You know, like what, what does salvation feel like? What does it do in people's lives? 
And then maybe using that to answer the question, what are we saved from? So starting with the really experiential, personal, yeah. and then uh, and then theorizing to the event or, you know, the event in each person's life or whatever from there. I haven't like done any of that work. I'm just, I realized last night that that's the way I want to think about it if I was going to think more about it. Yeah, there's a theologian doing some work on that with in terms of like attachment love. And, you know, you were talking, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, Natalia Marinduik, I don't know, I'm saying her last name wrong, but she's yeah. dealing with attachment theories and applying that to salvation. That's so interesting. And Marty and Josh, I promise I'll let you guys speak soon on your own podcast. Um, but one quick follow up on that, Sari. Now you know what it's like when Sari and I just talk. Uh, the, you know, when I interviewed Mary Clements at Fuller, who you set up to talk with me, she, one of the pieces of, um, research actually that she shared with us at that seminar at Fuller was that people with worse attachment are more likely to have conversion experiences and people with stronger attachment are more likely to have gradual, you know, gradual increase in faith. Um, I have secure attachment. My you know, I, I had it from my parents and I never had a conversion experience. I'm only one. It's an anecdote. It's just me. But that would make sense maybe that if, if conversion, uh, the kind of more rapid conversion that some people experience, which I believe is very real, by the way, just because I didn't experience it doesn't mean it's not real. Um, if that's coming from a place of like what we might call greater interpersonal brokenness, relational brokenness of having insecure attachment to you know, care, uh, caring figures or whatever, caregivers, then that would be a really interesting way of thinking about what atonement does. If it like repairs broken attachment, the, the theological issue there though, is that then people with like worse parents have more need of salvation, which would be maybe theologically problematic for most models of salvation. Mm. I also wonder if maybe like, you know, in problematic aspects of atonement or salvation, <laughs> Could you maybe refer to it almost as a Stockholm syndrome in, in some ways where like you feel like you have been pressured into making a choice mm. that you didn't really fully understand. And then as you go through that choice, you're in it and you embrace it, but you're kind of within this place where you wouldn't have wanted to be in the first place. I mean, I realize that may be a stretch, but I just was kind of thinking of that as you were talking. I think about that a lot with kids becoming Christians. Mm. Um, I think that probably if you wanted to get you, if you wanted to take one of these like attachment type approaches, I mean, we could ask Natalia, I suppose, but you, you might not want to take the salvation of an adult and the quote accepting of Christ of a six-year-old, like, like I did as the same thing that maybe those are different things, you know, like, what am I, I think about this a lot. What was I doing when I accepted Christ? I, I guess I accepted Christ. Sure. But I think what I really did was like, I participated in the rituals of my community that, that uh, there was almost no way I wasn't going to. It's not like, um, like my interaction with Jesus started later, you know, as I was like capable of more complex moral choice and, and thinking about the poor and thinking about my, you know, my place in the world and having more ability to reason and stuff like that. Um, so that is, but yeah, that's interesting. And you know, Marty, that I'm, I'm really interested in spiritual abuse. So the Stockholm syndrome stuff, that angle is always of interest to me, but anyway, yeah. we're getting off yeah. topic. Yeah. We haven't even gotten to your introduction yet, Dan. Well, I've been on before, you know, that's true. Yeah. So guys, Dan Koch, 
Uh, Google him. He like does a podcast and stuff. <laughs> Google uh, me. <laughs> oh gosh. He he'll come up. He'll come up under a page called uh, Dan Coke the Guru. That's his website. Oh um, gosh. <laughs> Screw you. I host the You Have Permission podcast, and I helped rename this podcast. You're very welcome. Yes, you did. Oh, is indeed. that true? Yeah, it's true. And it's true. And we. What get, was it going to be? Well, it used to be called. Uh, it used to be called Theology Doesn't Suck. I didn't come up with the name. I don't think. I think you did, Josh. Yeah, but you you were very helpful I in the process. You. I yes. I was pretty strong in my recommendation to change the name. Yes, yes, and, and also, also the music. Is yeah, Dan. the music is literally written by Dan. Yeah, yeah. and uh, also the little intro that we play beforehand, where I say some stuff. Uh, Dan helped with that as well. So also all the Patreon money goes straight to me and I dole out what I think Marty and Josh have earned. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's true. All $11 from our Patreon campaign. Thanks for listening to rethinking faith, uh, a property of Dan Coke enterprises. (laughs) (laughs) When you Google Dan, don't do like I did the first time and spell his last name. K O C K on accident. (laughs) You might come across things. Is there a, is there some sort of performer with a very similar name? Now I'm really tempted, but that's performer. because oh I know wrong, and I was like oh that's wrong, and so I, hit, I I deleted the K and put an H, and didn't look at any that, of the things that came up. That's how Dan so. spelled his name in college. You weren't supposed to find that. Oh my gosh! Oh goodness! All right, this I'm derailing us so bad. We need to to not do that. Well, we've already started talking about the website because the it's hell true. atonement stuff is like. Uh, is that the second or the second hottest topic on the the page, right, Siri? No, hell's number one. Hell's number one. Yeah, uh, so well, hell we atonement have... and salvation is the is the is topic. The topic yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it makes sense. We started we even before we told people what we were doing, we were doing what we're talking about. That's true. Meta. Perfect. It's like the yeah. the medium That's, is the because Siri set us up. Marshall yep. McLuhan. Yeah. Sari <laughs> yeah. set us up with, with her answer to the rethinking question, which was brilliant. brilliant yeah. True. I think people want to hear us talk about that stuff more than they want to hear us talk about a URL, you know? That's true. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> well, so speaking of the URL, it's uh, so you are deconstructing.com. Can you talk to us, either of you, about like just what this is, how it came to be in general? Yeah, let, well, we can keep it short so that we can really just kind of do some deconstruction talk. But basically, uh, I had this tweet, which was a joke, and it was, um, it gets better, but for former evangelicals, it gets better if you don't know, is like a, it's for gay adults, it's an organization where they, they write stuff for gay teenagers about like, hey, it's really hard right now, but it gets better. And so the joke was, what if those of us who have kind of come out of a particular kind of evangelicalism could do that for people who were just coming out of it? Uh, and then Siri was like, that's a good idea. If you do that, I want to be involved. And I said, I think it is a good idea and I definitely want you to be involved. And so we partnered up and built this website, which is basically, um, it has really kind of four main chunks to it, uh, other than some testimonies of, of people that have gone through it. We, it's got a topics page, which is the the meat of the site. So all kinds of, uh, you know, the Bible, politics and Christianity, hell, atonement and salvation, women in Christianity, doubt, deconstruction and reconstruction, science and faith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then we have a, a we have pages for communities, both digital and personal, um, for a page for spiritual practices and a page for therapy and discerning both uh, if therapy is right for you and how to go about finding a therapist who would be able to talk, at least has some kind of competency around these issues. Uh, and yeah, it's kind of just like a, a, a kind of a landing spot for a lot of the stuff that people go through when they begin to deconstruct their faith, which is the term that we probably don't need to explain on this podcast. Um, we don't, we don't need that word. We don't love that word, but it is the word that people are using right now for the thing that we're talking about. And so we used it. Yeah. And I just like have a heart for like resourcing people spiritually. Manager. And you are our spiritual <laughs> manager, Sari. Look at that. Yeah. I love, yeah. I love just connecting people with, I was like, I think you need to read this book actually. You know, like I don't need to have all the answers, but I love connecting people with the, with resources. I, and I think, and maybe we could talk about this because it feels like it's a hot topic right now. Homeschooling. I was homeschooled my whole life and in a very like churchy setting. I was maybe, my family was maybe like the least conservative from my church group slash homeschool group, which everyone was homeschooled. So, um, but one by one, as we got like hit adolescence and stuff, they all like fell off. Like all, like all my friends were gone. <laughs> and um, meaning they know. left Christianity or they just left your community. Uh, both. Yeah, both. Most of them actually left Christianity altogether. You know, some of them left to get addicted to drugs or something. Oh, that's <laughs> um, what they left for. <laughs> you know, however Ouch. the however the like rebellion started or whatever, yeah. and you know, a few, maybe a couple of them really ended up as adults digging their heels in and being like, "Yes, my parents had it all." You know, had it right. A couple, but the you know, ninety five percent um completely threw the baby out with the bathwater and said hey this isn't relevant you know so that's that's a real rough sketch but it was like really hard for me and really sad and um and you know i really dug my heels in for a while i was um you know part of pretty conservative evangelical reformed churches for a long time and then um and then ended up going through this process of like of of rethinking my faith um so so yeah, I just uh, that was where my heart was at with the with the website, and I think yeah, really inspired by seeing a lot of my friends just walk away from from Christianity entirely, and maybe you know with good reason. You know, I'm not judging that really. I'm just you know sharing my personal experience of loss. You know. Yeah, yeah, and as we're as we're sitting here and you you were just talking, I almost had like a like a flashback back to my my youth group days and it's weird because and I haven't I haven't thought about this before actually um my youth group experience was unique in the fact that like I was one of the weird kids because I was like bought in hook line and sinker to this Jesus stuff but most of my youth group was not at all like I was an oddball for that um like my youth pastor was real big on like going to skate parks and, you know, all like of quote, those kids that the church didn't like were like all the ones that were there. Uh, so that's interesting uh, because I was in like a very small group. There was like 10 of us who were like the core leader students and like, yeah, that's, huh. That's interesting. I was like you too, Josh. I was like, 
I was in it. I was yeah. like, this is <laughs> what I am all about. If you go back to my journals that are so embarrassing, I just am like writing about Jesus right and left. I'm writing about like how to form better like Bible clubs. And I'm like doing, a, <laughs> yeah. I did a wanna, I'm embarrassed to say, I did a wanna like through high school. Like, okay. <laughs> even when if people know what a wanna is, it's kind of like, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, but for learning Bible verses. Yeah. And you play like stupid games where you like run in a circle and do a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I learned I learned this morning that my wife Noelle did a wanna for a couple of years and she hated it. I never did it. Um, I did other stuff. But yeah, so like that that was like my experience. I grew up that someone gave me a microphone when I was like 13 and were like, hey, you should preach. Like I was that kid. Annoying, right? Um, but for me, what happened was then I like went into to college in high school. I did like all this, like super, this like super evangelical Bible camp thing called Chrysalis. Um, I did it like a ton of times, it, uh, you know, even to the point where I like became like leadership and like led my whole weekend, my own weekend retreat thing in high school, went into college. Um, and it wasn't until my sophomore year when I took my first theology class uh, when I finally hit that point of like, holy shit, everything I've been told is a lie. <laughs> and I didn't even go to like a super crazy liberal progressive school. Uh, my deconstruction journey actually started by reading N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, <laughs> uh, which I do not think was his intention when he wrote that book. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. book. You yeah. actually had NT on the podcast, didn't you? We did, yeah. That's and amazing. I did not share that with him. <laughs> oh, I, I wish you had. I should have. That yeah. would have been amazing. I have to have him back on and be like, hey, bro, here's the deal. <laughs> we actually forgot to tell you this one thing. We just wanted to have you on to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, so that's just it. real quick. Uh, unfinished <laughs> yeah. business, Tom. <laughs> but for you guys, so Dan or, or, or Sari, either one of you can go. Uh, I want to hear from both of you. But like, what was the catalyst for your own like deconstruction journey? What kicked things off for you? I think personal story is important. Um, and so I just want people to, to hear from you guys. Well, I'll just take a turn so we can space ourselves out. Um, for me, and I, I don't think I told this on your guys' show last time, but apologies if I'm repeating myself. I think the first real issue of like what we, what I would now consider deconstruction in, in a kind of a proper, like, here's a topic. I actually really need to figure this out right now. This kind of uh, propulsion to resolve cognitive dissonance was with uh, the Canaanite conquest in the Old Testament. And really, um, I was a philosophy major in college. This was probably my first and second years, basically, of, of undergrad. So I'm 18, 19. And I am thinking through the, the moral disgust of that, you know, that scene, that kind of narrative in the text. And specifically realizing that uh, it's not so much an issue of whether the Canaanites die, but more an issue of the fact that they are being commanded to be exterminated by the Israelites. And so in some sense, um, let's say every Canaanite was going to die anyway, uh, because there was going to be like, God was going to have an earthquake or something, you know, let's say some other version that's still different than like commanding an Israelite soldier to murder 
moms and children uh, and to like run his sword through a pregnant woman's belly because they can't be allowed to propagate again, you know, and lead the Israelites astray. And so that was really, that was something that I was like, okay, I have to, this is challenging my understanding of the Bible and I need to consider other options here. What are other ways of thinking about this? Uh, and eventually that led me to like Pete Enns, but I think that that was, um, Enns came more like five to 10 years later. I don't remember who I was reading at the time, maybe some of those like four views kinds of books and, and stuff like that, but really kind of recognizing that, oh, okay, I, I'm probably not going to be able to keep, I don't know if I would have called it inerrancy at the time. I don't know if I knew that term, probably not going to be able to keep whatever that is. Uh, I need to, I need to, I think at first I toyed with like progressive revelation of some sort. Um, and then eventually realized like, no, I just think that they were mistaken about God, that this does not reflect who God is, doesn't reflect God in Christ, doesn't reflect God as I experience God, uh, the God that I know would never command this. And if anybody today in any religion said, God has told us to do this, we would immediately condemn them as Satan told you to do that, or you told yourself to do that or, or something. So we would never believe anyone. And I don't, so I don't think we should believe the text on that either. Uh, and that began as you can, anybody listening right now, and I'm sure Josh and Marty and Sarah, you, you guys know all the threads that are connected to that little thread coming out. And so that was one, that was one of the early ones for me. And then that has, of course, led to all the other questions that are connected to it. Sure. Sari, what about for you? Um, yeah, I, I would say it really started in seminary. Um, I had been very, um, my faith all growing up was very reformed and it was very like intellectual, very, uh, like cessationist. And that just means like not believing in the present kind of activity of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> however you want to define that. So it was very like an intellectual faith. It was very the systematic theology, you know, Calvin's institutes. And it was all about getting all the pieces plugged in correctly and having all the good theology. And it was very narrow. And, you know, I thought pretty much like my whole childhood, you know, adolescence, early 20s, whatever, <laughs> that, you know, there probably weren't a lot of like real Christians, I'm doing air quotes, um, outside of like, you know, Calvinist churches, basically, <laughs> you know, like in Methodist, in any mainline churches, you know, maybe if they weren't like, if they were so foggy on the details, you could maybe be really a Christian. But if you were like a committed Arminian, you probably weren't, you know, <laughs> like, so it was a very narrow way of thinking. And um, so to kind of make a long story short, I went through a lot of personal tragedy in my early 30s, and that led me to start going to therapy. And during the process of therapy, I sort of just like softened and learned to kind of listen to my instincts and my feelings more. Um, and then that sort of prepared me to go into seminary, to Fuller Seminary, which is a very eclectic, plural, like, space there are people from all kinds of denominations you know and one of the first classes i took was the history the modern history of american christianity and it was so broad and so so pluralistic and 
And, you know, there are people from all these traditions like in the room and they all clearly like love God and are, con are concerned for truth and trying to be like Jesus and all those good things. And so that just kind of pushed me to being more open to some other ideas and to holding right doctrine and just having right beliefs. I'm doing a lot of air quotes here. Um, <laughs> less important. Um, and so, yeah, that was a, that was a first of that, that was what got me going. That was the slippery slip that got me going. But my, my master's degree was only two years. So it was just long enough for me to become, to question everything I believed and my understanding of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but not enough to put me back together. So oh, no. podcasts uh, I... really helped. Uh, yeah. They helped me. Podcasts had, helped me too. Yeah. If, yeah. Only, if only I'd had SoYourDeconstructing.com to guide At me. The time. Oh, <laughs> if only. Be the change, Sari. I, can I make one little plug? Uh, yeah. It won't come out now for probably doing the math like two or three months, but maybe three months. But Sari and I will be doing a long form episode on You Have Permission of her story. And oh, cool. I just added in a new note, a question to ask you that we will save for that, which is, is there a relationship between cessationism as mm. a theological principle and what you experienced as not being able to listen to your feelings, emotions, and mm. bodily reactions? Like, is there, is there a relationship between like the cessation of the Holy Spirit in the abstract and not listening to one's own body? Super interesting. Totally. I'd love to explore that. I think of that like, if you talk about your feelings at all, you usually get proof texted with the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You yep. know, <laughs> yeah, yep. which that doesn't even make sense. It's like, how do you know that the heart is specifically referring to emotions, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they're only deceitful, you know, like what? Anyway. Yeah. My, that's one thing, uh, a, a friend of the podcast, a friend of mine, Bruxy Cavey. I don't know if you've heard of him, Siri, but he's a pastor oh, yeah. in, in, uh, Canadian, yeah, yeah, but he he talks about that a lot. Actually, um, he takes issue with that, and he he does like you know theological stuff, old covenant, new covenant stuff, and the you know heart being deceitful is old covenant kind of deal. But also, he points out specifically that there's like an like anti woman kind of vibe that goes around oh, when you throw around yeah. the heart is deceitful because men they're logical they use their brains and they're rational creatures but women on the other hand they are you know just purely emotional they operate out of their heart so bruxy gets like fired up like patriarchy is he calls on this you know on that specific issue dude it's so true the i mean i think the bible is just simply observing that we're good at deceiving ourselves like and that is very psychologically provable 100 we're true, yeah. very good at deceiving ourselves with our thoughts like we're our own little lawyers that want to believe certain things and find ways to do it you know yeah. but you're right about that because i was as i the 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 sexist part because growing up i was taught that the bible taught that women are more easily deceived mm -hmm. and that the mm -hmm. the subtext of that was you know that's from timothy um that you know eve was deceived or whatever um but also this like undertone of like because they're more emotional and probably right. because they're periods you know right this okay <laughs> this is a this is a topic for future investigation but i'm trying to think if I mean, I guess emotions, emotions can deceive you in the sense of like, 
uh, post-traumatic emotions or like panic attacks can be irrational. Um, negative emotions can cause cognitive distortions. That's what CBT therapy does is, is try to uh, change your behavior by changing cognitive distortions. But I would, and don't quote me on this, but I would guess that a psychologist would say that our thoughts and our reason deceive us far more often than our automatic feelings and emotions do. Mm. That generally speaking, emotions are a sign that you need to take a look at something mm -hmm. and use your reason to do that, to investigate it. But like a lot of people get out of cults, for instance, because something in their body revolts against the brainwashing that they're partaking in, for instance. So, um, whereas, of course, sometimes thoughts can get you out of emotions, like CBT is a good example of that. So it's it's not a completely a one-way street there, but I think if you had to like put the preponderance of it, you'd actually you'd actually be more worried about thoughts than feelings, mm. which is interesting. Yeah. Cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy, in case anybody doesn't know. CBT. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm just going from I'm going from uh, yeah. class to podcasting and my brain doesn't uh, yeah. always transition. <laughs> well, and I did a when I was a youth pastor a few years ago, I did a I led the youth group through a study of Proverbs. Uh, it was at a reformed church um, as well. So I think about some of those things, a lot of that made sense to me. Um, one of the things we we read, um, I basically, I was instructed if I wanted to do Proverbs, I needed to buy a commentary that was done by a strong reformed thinker. Um, and I looked and there was like one book, but I can't remember the author's name because I stopped reading it. Um, <laughs> I haven't read it in like four years. Uh, but the thing that I gathered out of that, which is really important, you guys were talking about the heart, is that the, the ancient thinker saw their heart as much more of their brain than just being a vessel or an organ that pumped blood throughout the body and did a job in that way. So like when, when it says in Proverbs, uh, guard your heart for all, everything you do flows from it. It's because their mental belief was that this was more like the brain. The heart was more like whatever is put here, you will then act out on and your mind actually has less to do with that, which now we would call acting from your heart and using that, in air quotes, as Sari was doing before, would be acting from your emotions and acting in acting from your mind would be acting from, you know, cognitive thought, making a reasonable decision. And so acting from your heart would oftentimes not be proper. Um, but I, I think I think an ancient thinker would push back against that greatly um, in saying, well, if you guard your heart and everything you do will flow from it, they would say, well, it's because of this and what you feel oftentimes is better <laughs> than like taking four days and thinking through it and, you know, rationalizing the pros and cons. And then you can't even decide what to do, but like, sometimes mm -hmm. you have to make a choice. So I, to me, that was important to, to understand that distinction is they're not talking about the heart necessarily only as the organ, but they're talking about it as like what they understood to be the center of everything in their physical body. Right. Totally. Yeah. This is one of the consequences of the anti-intellectualism in a lot of um, low church environments, especially. And you know, not you wouldn't necessarily. I, I think that what Sari, what you found in your kind of hyper reform context was a different move. That was like a 
a very high-minded intellectualization of everything, you know, we're going to pin it on like solid theology and stuff. But in a low church context, you get the assumption that, oh, the heart is deceitful. Like they must mean heart the way we mean heart in like a post Hallmark Valentine's Day sense in like a post romantic era where, you know, love songs become the most common form of music, you know, starting sometime in the, I don't know, Europe in the late Middle Ages, like that wouldn't have been true for them. But if you, if your pastors don't go to seminary and, you know, nobody is particularly concerned with scholarship or understanding, you know, putting these Greek or Hebrew words in their context to figure out what people would have assumed that they meant. If you don't have any of that, then you can make simple, naive errors like that with massive consequences where you think the Bible is talking about something in the way you talk about it in your modern parlance. And it's just not what they mean. Yeah. And also just like the, um, the lack of, there's a lack of like desire or energy to reclaim sort of like the Jewishness of our Christian faith, the Jewish origins or to get into the, the thinking of an ancient, you know, Israelite scribe, how, how their sort of context and worldview, you know, shaped what they were writing. There's problem there. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I know this is not normal uh, behavior, but I actually, I want to ask Marty a question, even though he's one of the hosts, is that okay with you guys? Totally. Yeah. So Marty, we're talking about deconstruction and throwing this language around and I'm genuinely curious and I don't know why I've never asked you this before, but like you personally, because you and I were on, on very different uh, spiritual journeys, which is fine. I think we, we complement each other and um, have really good conversations and, uh, you know, strengthen each other um, in a wide variety of ways. But like, how do you interact with that word deconstruction? Like, would you say that you've had any kind of deconstruction experience or journey? Um, if not, like, is rethinking a, a, a more helpful word for you? Like, how how do you interact with this this idea, like you personally? Yeah, I think um, the first time I heard the word deconstruction and kind of dug in was um, not not in not in jest and also not to be like hurtful. But the first time I heard it, my initial reaction was, "Well, those are just a bunch of people that." they have like they're just they're confused like anyone that's deconstructing um they just don't have it all together like you know they didn't get it when the pastor talked about this or they didn't listen fully and so they kind of like have this mental um like just disassociation with what they were supposed to understand i think it was um um man i'm forgetting his name uh but the he was on um the podcast with the gungers um uh william uh, from he he used to be at Bethel Music and he posted something on his Instagram, basically talking about what deconstruction was. And when I read through what that was, um, I started thinking, okay, well maybe this isn't such a bad taboo thing. And why are people pushing back so much against somebody asking questions? And I realized it's because they're asking questions that some of these other people they actually just don't even have the answer to themselves. And it's scary to be asked a question you don't know the answer to 
And it's even scarier to have someone who you've raised up um, to be asking those questions that you can't answer. Um, And so I I thought, you know, a lot of the, the pushback and strangeness of it, it's really just a coping mechanism for people to, that don't understand what it means to think through things. Um, I I would say that I've not gone through a deconstruction of my faith. I I feel like the core aspects of what I've believed um, since the first time I did are still there. Um, I think that there have been aspects of things that are second tier, third tier, fourth tier, even fifth tier issues um, that I've kind of thought, okay, well, you know, I've, I've rethought that. So rethinking probably fits better. Like I remember while in seminary, um, we were, we were in the New England area. We were looking for just a, a modern church, a contemporary church um, that did modern music. And that had, you know, just kind of, we didn't really care if the sermon was, you know, topical or if it was, if it was, you know, more exegesis, we just, we wanted to be a part of a church that was seemed modern. And there literally was only one that we could find that was within driving distance of us. And it happened to be an Assemblies of God church. And I remember being like so against the idea of speaking in tongues, so completely against uh, any manifestation of gifts in any way, shape or form, but just saying like, that's, there's no way that's any good. Like, you know, look at like, and here's these verses that say that this is no good. And, um, and I remember being there and thinking that's what they were going to tell me I had to do. And one of the pastors, his name is Jamie Booth. He said, uh, um, we don't, we don't think you have to do that to be a Christian. It's, it's certainly something you can do. Uh, and it's certainly something we would say is good, but if you don't feel called to that, like you don't need to do that. And here's a verse, by the way, in which Paul says, if you don't feel led to speak in tongues, then that's okay. Don't force it. Look for your own gifts and live into those. And so I was like, oh my gosh, like here I am, the seminary student, I'm learning, learning these new things. Um, I think if I had to answer the rethinking faith question, Josh, I think the strongest thing I would choose, um, similar to what Sari said, would be my thought process on LGBTQ uh, community. Um, and just the, I, just the thought process of whether or not like they should even be allowed to do anything in church or whether, and like that, to me, that was the first issue. Um, and I remember kind of sitting down and just saying, okay, I'm going to think about this for, you know, as long as it takes to figure this out and just starting at the top, should they be allowed to attend church? Well, of course they should, you know, and then should they be allowed to be a part of a church where they can do something in the church? Well, of course they should. And then after that, it was like, well, this whole issue is stupid then. Like there's not even, there shouldn't even be an issue. So like, I I guess to answer your question in a short way, I would say I definitely have rethought many aspects of my faith where I've kind of said, you know, this is, this is good. This is interesting. Why does it have to be this way? Um, but there definitely hasn't ever been a time where I have felt like I needed to completely deconstruct my faith down and rebuild it up because I had great leaders that didn't force anything on me ever um, and really allowed me to ask questions. I, I'm not a part of, I was never a part of that evangelical community where asking questions was frowned upon. I was, I was given ample opportunity to ask questions, push back on things I didn't understand, figure out what that meant friends that listened and talked about that. I'm definitely blessed <laughs> in that way. I've been given, and I've, I've been given an amazing root of my faith. Um, but I, I don't say that to say that 
deconstructing now when I look at it and I initially looked at it in a negative way. To me, I think deconstruction is is a wonderful thing with the caveat in my mind, and I realize this is my thing, um, but the caveat that it leads to a reconstruction of something because I do think having something spiritual in your life is a really valuable thing, but I don't think it needs to be exactly the way somebody else tells you it has to be. I think that your reconstruction leads to you being able to say, I've spent time thinking about this. If praying is something you do, you've spent time praying about it. You've talked to people you trust and people that have mentored you and carried you through that, where your faith now is something that is strong. Um, and it's something that you don't feel like somebody else told you you had to believe. And so now you just believe it, you know, and that's it. You know, well, I believe in Tulip. Well, I just believe in it. I don't know. I don't know why I believe limited atonement is okay, but I do. Well, that's a really big thing to understand. <laughs> like you really need to understand that and like know what you're saying. So to me, I think that reconstruction should be a huge part. So I, I, okay. that's kind of my story. Yeah, that so that's interesting, Marty, and, and that ties in nicely because I wanted to ask anyway uh, to Dan and um, and Siri as well. Like, t- so to Marty's comment, to what end do you guys think deconstruction should serve? Like, is reconstruction something that you think we should aim for? Uh, I know that that's a difficult question, but but what do you guys think about that? Any thoughts? Dan first. <laughs> um. I, yeah, I was just th- sitting here thinking about <clears throat> situations where I don't even, if there are situations where I don't think someone needs to reconstruct, I guess I don't think that not reconstructing is even possible. It's just a question of whatever you do reconstruct, if it still resembles Christianity or not. And so I think probably for me, I would say, unless your experience is pretty abusive, then I would want people to reconstruct into some form of Christianity uh, or at least something that is um, focused on the teachings and life of Christ. That's my preference because that's where I find, uh, you know, myself and I I find immense spiritual value in that tradition. I think if you're really abused um, or really even if you're only slightly abused, you, you should feel, you should feel freedom to take your time with that. Uh, And there are probably some people for whom realistically it's not good for them to do something that is Christian, you know, that, that uh, the wounds might be too deep where they're not actually even having the same kind of interaction with God that I'm having with God when I engage in Christian practice because of their, of stuff that people have basically done to them. And in those situations, I think God understands and is not going to hold that against them, of course. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, you know, my, my first faith podcast that I started was called Reconstruct, or I co-created co, uh, that with John Raines. And so that's a big part of my own view. And I have done plenty of reconstruction myself. And, and for me, the, the real joy of it has been in recognizing that reconstructing a more liberal uh, theology has not made me a person of less faith and that I've found a really beautiful existing community of people with more liberal ideas, but really uh, intense faith. That's not to say there are no issues with a lot of those denominations in terms of they're dying and the church is not fun and 
I think there's a lot of stuff around that to discuss, but I just now personally know so many liberal theologians who love God and who have loved me well as someone they didn't need to love at all uh, before, long before I had any sort of podcast platform to offer them. You know, I'm thinking of Tom Ord who spent, you know, just hours talking with me over meals at conferences when I was just there to learn, you know, just like that kind of a thing is like, Oh yeah. So there's totally faith after liberalism, you know, it's not, that's not the end of it. Uh, and so for me, that's been the reconstruction part. Sarah, you probably have, I would guess kind of a similar answer. Yeah. Well, Sarah, totally. before, you, before you jump, but I just wanted to say one thing, Dan, about what you were saying. It's really to me to hear that and to listen to that, because I think also there can be an interesting bad parallel or uncomfortable parallel to the term reconstruction to the idea that like, if you're in the church and someone hurts you, you ought to repair that relationship and then jump back into that relationship. Yeah. So like somebody who's in an abusive marriage gets divorced and they say, well, you really just need reconciliation. And so many churches push that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's super dangerous because it's like, I, I have personal, not my myself, but personal experience with a divorce and hearing from a church, you know, you guys just really, I believe if you do this and this and this and this, you'll find reconciliation and it just wasn't healthy and it wasn't what they needed. And I feel like reconstruction can be a similar parallel to that. We're jumping back in and saying, okay, now you need to reconstruct. Well, it's like, well, wait a minute. No, like, I don't, I feel like I want to step away from this for a period of time. So I just wanted to say that because that thought came to me as you were speaking. I think one way to reconcile that is just to say that our goal, our, our values as Christ followers are not always universally applicable in the same way. So as a Christian, I'm committed to forgiveness, capital F, in as many situations as possible. That does not mean that I'm committed to every possible instance of forgiveness after any length of time, short or long, after someone has genuinely sought it or not. You know, like uh, there are any number of kinds of situations where we would not want someone to forgive yet because for instance, the person has not asked for forgiveness and to say you need to forgive them is actually just a way to, re- to reduce my cognitive dissonance that I'm aware of some unhealthy interaction in my congregation or something. Right. But I'm still committed to forgiveness just done in an appropriate way, informed by the situation, informed by wisdom and discernment. That that, I think free. that's just a way to, you don't have to lose the, you don't have to lose the commitments. It's just a matter of how we apply them in individual situations. Sorry, Siri, please go ahead. I wanted just to share that real briefly. No, I'm really glad you did. And I, I actually, yeah, uh, the, the thing that led me to go to therapy was a really disastrous and dramatic divorce as well. So I can relate to your experience. I did have a very supportive church community and I won't I won't knock them, but there were some misguided comments along the way that were very confusing. Um, and I think that's a good kind of parallel analogy. And I mean, I don't think I have very much new to say with reconstruction. We made the website because we have a conviction that that there's something positive about continuing to engage with a good God and um, and the story of Jesus. And so, um, 
I don't know. Maybe the question is more like, does it, does everyone need to deconstruct? Because, um, because not everyone needs to like figure all this stuff out. Like it, it's a kind of a personality thing maybe. Um, and maybe there's more issues over time that become salient. Like the political thing is something that's very confusing right now for a lot of people, right? Like, do, do I, ha- can I be a Christian and not be a Republican is a question people are asking, you know? And so we say on the website, you know, we're not saying you have to think about all these things before you can really like call yourself a Christian or something. But if something's a not for you, if something's a problem or a, or if there's a, if there's a perceived conflict, there might be options that you haven't thought of within the Christian tradition. You know, even for me, like I had to be like, Oh, like John Wesley wasn't bad. And he had some good ideas. You know? <laughs> John, John Calvin, John, or John Edwards, John uh, Wesley, like death match had to go on in my head or whatever. But, um, you know, there's all these, there were certain issues that became um, prominent for me, but they're not, you know, that's, we would never universalize that for, for everyone. And certain personalities need more, you know, intellectual exercise to kind of like feel comfortable. You know, some people just don't need that. You know, Josh might be a little young, but do you guys remember Celebrity Deathmatch? Hey, I know Celebrity Deathmatch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Imagine like like John Edwards versus John Calvin. <laughs> it's I, you a claymation pretty, like fighting. And, you could get some good theological jokes in an episode like that. It yeah. would be it's solid. Too bad, it's too bad claymation takes so damn long. <laughs> so time consuming. Yeah, do so within this this topic of the, the reconstruction bit um i've gotten myself in this hot water before in more progressive communities um because i asked the questions like does deconstruction ever become boring to you or like do you ever just grow tired of like tearing shit down all the time like for because for me that was my experience and then people were like you can't tell me i have to reconstruct you know which is fair i like i don't want to tell anybody that but like I still feel like there's something to that, that like, cause I, I did it. I tore down everything. And then I was like, Oh, okay. Well now what? And I was just kind of bored and I was like, okay, well nihilism isn't great. <laughs> so like, what can I do moving forward? And eventually uh, I ran into things like, uh, you know, contemplative practice and things like that and became more experiential about my faith. Um, but I think there's something to that. I don't know. Have you, have you ever guys have ever gotten pushback for any of the kind of like reconstruction stuff within some of the circles? Not for me. I don't think I've been in enough circles. Maybe Dan, have you been in a lot of, you've been in more circles than me. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in circles. Um, uh, you know, it's a good question, Josh. I don't, I'm not thinking of like, personal anecdotes or anything, but I'm thinking about that, that issue. I, it kind of just depends on what you count as deconstruction and reconstruction. For me, they're, they're almost always going on at the same time. And what would be boring for me is merely criticizing. So um, for instance, like here's another episode about how evangelicals suck is like, uh, okay, you know, but Here's an episode, like this, a recent you know, permission episode. Here's the history of conspiracy theories in the evangelical tradition that started 35 plus years before I was born. Well, that's interesting. 
that's but that's not just deconstruction because as i think about that i'm thinking how do i safeguard myself against conspiratorial thinking how do i avoid this as i raise my son um and so some of it is what you bring to the content someone else could also listen to that episode and be like another episode on how evangelicals suck boring you know someone probably thought that about the show and and so it's i don't know i don't know that you find it like in in fact kind of what marty was saying is interesting here too a bunch of the stuff marty that you have rethought there are people who read or heard the exact same thing and it was deconstruction for them because they were raised less moderate than you were and more extreme and more sheltered however you want to fill it out right so somebody in that church that morning who also was visiting from a more conservative AG church might have said the verse about it's okay not to speak in tongues might have caused them to deconstruct. And for you, it was just like this nice freeing thing. So sometimes it's in the eye of the beholder and our, we bring our past and our current attitudes to a, a thing, a piece of, a piece of content or media or text. And that determines if we're deconstructing or reconstructing with it, you know, people listen to episodes of your show and some people are deconstructing to the, as they listen and others are reconstructing as they listen to literally the exact same argument. I'm yeah. figuring this yeah. out in real time as we talk about it. And I, I think this is a better model. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's all really great. I mean, I, I, I love that. And I think that you're right that, you know, for some people, what tears down other people, it builds up. And I think we, I think, I think that's true even outside the church too. I, I think that, you know, if you just, if I, I wouldn't be able to come up with something off the top of my head necessarily right now, but I think in theory, you know, what. I'll seems, give you an example. I'll give you an example. Yeah. The Democrats or the Republicans want yeah. to destroy us, vote yeah. against them. Yeah. And there you go. You that's that, just, you know, just well, there's no I mean, positive content to that. What do we stand for? Right. And, yeah. and you know. My household is a is a pretty um, split on that. My, there's a couple of my dad and a couple of my siblings that think more conservatively, and then a couple of us that think more liberally, and then a couple of us that are kind of in the middle. And um, it's kind of you know you, you kind of sit there and you listen to what the other person says, and if you get past all the you know well that's ridiculous that you think that nonsense, and you get to the concept of well, let's talk about this together, let's hear what this has to be. I think it brings a different thing to the table. Um, but I wanted to ask you as a different question. Um, I find that oftentimes there's like this common critique of the more progressive progressive Christian movement. And, um, is that anyone is going through those things is essentially just trading one extreme for the other. Um, they're moving from this legalism to this other legalism. They're moving from, well, I don't believe, I don't believe in that, but now I believe in this, or I believed in that, but I don't. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like, any thoughts on trading extremes for the other? Is that really what it is? Yeah, there's a, that question is prominent right now. <laughs> and that definitely happens. Um, sort of I would the, say uh, liberals ask that question too. Yeah. They, uh, or people who like have moved left, but not all the way left they see some of their friends who've deconstructed and they're like, wait, are you just a new kind of fundamentalist? So that's actually not a critique that only comes from the conservatives, like the, from the pre deconstructed, as it were, it also comes from the fellow deconstructed as a criticism of some people. It's, it's definitely a real phenomenon. Yeah. So 
I don't know what to say besides yes. I I'll, I know that I have to think a lot of my friends now that now that I'm friends with some more progressive Christians, I find myself amongst a lot of, you know, process type thinking people, process theologians. And I, you know, I used to there was a virgin version of myself where I was like <laughs> Josh is getting excited. <laughs> There's a version of my of myself that was like Okay, I don't know what I think about every part of Christian theology, but my default view is going to be whatever the Orthodox Reformed thing is. And now I don't have that anymore. Um, and so I do like watch, like I'm watching myself be like, well, are my default positions going to be just like whatever my friends are? Like, am I going to call myself process just because I'm friends with all these process folks now? <laughs> Like, is that my new default or do question. I even have yeah. to pick one? You know, like I'm just trying to be more self-aware and just actually keep seeking truth and love, uh, you know, and not tribalism <laughs> and not you, just acceptance and belonging, which are big drivers. I have a little riff on this issue, Marty, of the trading one extreme for the other that I think explains it at least somewhat. <clears throat> and that is that basically as I understand the neurology of this kind of stuff, and I'm no expert, um, basically, if you're raised in a fundamentalist environment, you're, you're not taught good habits of uh, reasoning, questioning things, checking counter arguments and evidence, considering whether what someone is giving you is a logical fallacy or not. You know, you're not critical thinking is you could, to sum it up in a phrase. And when somebody is, leaves one of those communities, um, it is actually much easier for their brain to simply replace the old good guys and enemies as, a, as referent, you know? So, oh, now the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys. And I don't actually have to do any rewiring of my brain, which takes time and work and it's uncomfortable. And I have to deal with a bunch of anxiety and a bunch of feelings of like, cognitive dissonance because I don't know the answer right now. And I was raised to always know the answer. I wasn't raised to be comfortable with that kind of ambiguity. So it's certainly the easier road to become a liberal fundamentalist than it is to address the real problem and learn to think critically. That, so that I think explains at a, at a cognitive neurological level, why we see that happening. Uh, at a basic level, you would say, I stopped following John Piper on Facebook and I started following Rob Bell. So sure, <laughs> I right. replaced one with the other and uh, now I, now I, everything is fine. I'm done. I now I'm a, yeah, now I'm, now I've turned into a farewell John Piper Christian, yeah. you know, or whatever. Or it used to be that I was brought up to believe that the Democrats were satanic. Now I think the Republicans are satanic, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Easy. Yeah. You just swap them. That's not that much work except finding a new group of friends. But once you find those friends, then they will also reinforce that just like your old fundamentalist community reinforced it. And they will also not encourage you to do any more thinking if you're surrounded by like-minded people. So you have to find the hard thing is to find a community of people who are willing to be in this sense in the middle. That doesn't mean that in the middle of every issue is the truth, but in the sense of this continuum of fundamentalisms, the middle is where you actually evaluate uh, multiple possibilities and you have to sit for a while not knowing which of those possibilities is the most accurate, uh, you know, until you can come up with a probabilistic. I mean, you basically spend a lot of time living with tension if you're learning to think critically because 
it's actually very hard to tell what the world is like, it turns out. And uh, many people are, are not well suited, either temperamentally or because of the way that they were treated and formed. They're not well suited to live with that kind of ambiguity. And so they will always drift to one fundamentalism or another. Thanks for yeah. catching my Piper Bell reference. <laughs> yeah, man. By the way. Just got to flip that farewell <laughs> on its head. Bro, but also, yeah. Dan, that was a that was like a fucking dagger to my heart, man. Like, I, cause I would never think of myself as like, Oh, you know, Josh is a more like fundamentalist progressive guy. Now actually I, I get so mad on like Twitter with more progressive liberal people, which is why I don't have Twitter. Uh, but when you said farewell, John Piper, I was like, shit, that's definitely how I feel, <laughs> <laughs> which sucks because like, ah, man, like the, so I'll say something I admire about John Piper maybe that'll, that'll uh, resolve some of my, my tension. I think John Piper, his, at least what he puts forth is he has a genuine love and to use his word desire for God. And like that comes through in everything he does. Like I genuinely think John Piper does the things that he does, says the things that he says because he has a genuine love and desire for God. And he thinks that's what he ought to be doing and saying. Um, which is hard to say because I think he says some really terrible, awful things sometimes, but I also admire his uh, devotion maybe is a good word. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I was like, dang it, man. He just dang well, he it. Also, he also <laughs> criticized Trump during both election That's cycles, true. which I he think did. automatically puts him in the top, I don't know, 20% of, even, of conservative evangelical thought leaders. Yeah, because yeah. I think Russell Moore did the same, right? Or Russell course, Moore maybe yeah. more recently has been speaking out about like you know racism and things. No, things more more has also been a never Trumper from oh right from on the jump. Yep, good deal. Yep. Good maybe deal. we should I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah. Farewell, John MacArthur. Mm. Yeah, that's Man, a harder that one. I like that one. <laughs> He's I mean, honestly, unfortunately, he I think be... a lot of people have already done that. I mean, like, yeah. there's been many people that have been like, okay, you know, that stuff you said last year, forget it, man. We're out of here. I mean, you gotta <laughs> like, wonder at that point anyway. if there's some senility involved. I don't know. He's yeah. pretty old. <laughs> he is. <laughs> He should he not. He should probably not have a platform anymore. Well, though. that's the yeah. thing that when we're talking about like switching the bad guys around or whatever, it's yeah. like what that's like. Everything you said is great, Dan, and it's like I agree or whatever. But when you get into like the specific, <laughs> that was great. I agree, I agree or whatever. But, whatever. but, but, by the way, but bro. like when you get into like particular examples and uh, and particular issues and particular policies and stuff, like it gets. I don't know. It gets hairy. I feel like I think there it, is a call to like call evil evil. Yes, you know. Yes. 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 But the question is, uh, here you're totally right. What what I would recommend people do who leave fundamentalism is that they begin to call evil fundamentalism of any kind, not just the old fundamentalism they had and they don't call the new fundamentalism evil. So I do think that John MacArthur is doing far more harm than good in the world. And I also think that, uh, I don't know, like Bill Maher is also doing quite a bit of harm as a kind of a leftist fundamentalist. He, he's, a, he's complicated because he's, I guess I just mean on religion. He's a weird kind of uh, intellectual dark web flavored political guy but think of you know think of somebody who's just who's just simply 
um, doubling down on their progressivism. And all they do is basically demonize conservatives, including like anyone who voted for Donald Trump, calling those people akin to slave owners, you know, whatever. You can imagine the rhetoric. Like, I would also condemn that as evil. That doesn't do any good to anybody. So how would you define fundamentalism in this general sense that we're talking about? Not Christian fundamentalism, right. but when you say, how would you, for the people at home, Dan, what do you think? <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll start with the, I'll start with the religious version, which is, ch- tends to be, as I understand it, there is some text that is completely perfect in its present form and that it is never okay to disagree with what it affirms. What would that be for a liberal? So you could replace the physical text of like the Bible or the Quran with something like an ideology. So there would be some agreed upon ideology that is never questioned. And if you do, you are fully outside the bounds. And our job is not not to think about this or support it, but rather to be soldiers on behalf of it. And then now we, yeah. yes, we reduce the humanity of the other. They are now the, the evil enemy. So any kind of fundamentalism like that, I think if you're willing to decry that, then you can, you'll, you'll find examples on both sides. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Or good, good, all kinds of, not just sides, like you'll find non-political versions, you know, other versions of that kind of fundamentalist thinking. Yeah, that, a good comparison might be like Don Lemon to Laura Ingram, you know, two two on the opposing side, necessarily standing up for the specific things that they personally believe. Um, but then I would find that in many, in both of them, anytime there's been something that to either of them seems universally wrong, they're willing to kind of come to the center, which to yeah. me, it seems like what you're saying, Dan, and it seems from the experiences that I'm getting that it's not that any extremism is bad, but I feel that if you are more concerned with sticking to your guns on the level of extremism than trying to find common ground, you wind up putting yourself in more and more of an isolated echo chamber than being able to reach common ground with anybody at any point. Um, and I, I guess maybe maybe some people would push back and say, well, why do we need to find common ground? But I, I, I think finding common ground brings us peace and not peace for me because like you talked about earlier um it's not based on me it's just based on the fact that i do think that it's important for us to be able to come together rather than place ourselves on two opposing sides with nothing in between ever like we can't ever find anything in the middle it's just either this or this and we're kind of stuck on either end um so i don't know that's just was was a thought i had when you're talking no yeah and i think one thing one one more thing too just to add to that and then um I have like eight more questions I wanted to ask, but we also, to be fair to time, we'll have to, to start to wrap things up because I think we could do like a four hour podcast or maybe we should just start doing this like weekly for fun. Like just get on, <laughs> record, see what happens, call it something. Uh, but one thing that, that in regards- Atonement constantly. Atonement <laughs> constantly. That's what we'll do. We'll do four hour riffs on what we think about atonement that week. And, and it will turn into something else about yeah, five seconds. It'll be good. Dan, you should get uh, Toby to do some uh, screaming vocals for us for the yeah. intro. I'll start working on the music bed and he can add some screams. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, right on. <laughs> uh, but the one thing that, that bothers me uh, within that context too, of like the, the fundamentalist on either side is sometimes, and I'm going to call out some of my more progressive friends, um, 
I wish that progressive people sometimes could just be a little bit more patient. Like for example, uh, somebody who is learning or trying to learn about say like the LGBTQ community, you accidentally slip up and like misuse a pronoun or something like that. And you get fucking slammed, like jumped on. And then that gives that person no incentive to to then actually want to try to learn and understand because from the get go, they tried and then they were just shut down automatically. So sometimes I wish on both sides of the fundamentalist spectrum, it's maybe how you say things sometimes, not necessarily what you say. Although there are things that the what is just terrible, but I think like, I, I mean, I even can think of like podcasters that I've listened to or like authors that I really want to like, but they're just so abrasive and like angry and, you know, fuck everybody that that just is a turnoff. Like slow down a little bit, know your audience. Like, can we just Actually, I think that I think that they know their audience and that's why they talk that way. Oh, sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's that's, easy. Yeah. That's easy. The money. It's easy to draw a crowd that way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think it's cathartic. Yeah. It's easy to, to draw a crowd by being angry about something. Well, to tie this into the website, you know, on each of these topic pages, we actually have a range of views. So uh, generally speaking, from top to bottom, they will they will range from sort of easiest to comprehend or shorter pieces to more scholarly pieces. But they also tend to some of the top the other way we'll sometimes do it is some of the top ones will be a more conservative take or a centrist kind of a moderate take on things and people can find where they're at or what they happen to you know agree with at the time uh we're very much not committed to any particular view on any of these issues uh mm-hmm. you know broadly speaking broadly speaking there are no views like there are no articles about it's not a debate site there are no creationist articles for instance <laughs> sure um but like you know there's there are different perspectives on women or, uh, you know, trans issues or what have you. Like there, there, there are a variety of opinions, spe- specifically on the really the theological issues. There are a lot of different opinions on most of these topic pages. Yeah. Got your boy, we got your boy N.T. Wright on there, you know? Yeah, N.T. Wright's on there. <laughs> also, you guys, you have uh, Bible Project stuff. Yeah, which yeah. Is, like, Tim Mackey, yeah. Tim Mackey is like super cool, by the way. The, the dude somehow manages to attract people from all over the spectrum Mm-hmm. And like never gives a solid theology answer about anything. Yeah. <laughs> he just yeah. is like, well, the Bible, maybe like he's a solid biblical scholar. We're actually, we're talking with him soon uh, within the next month. So we're excited about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, but, he does really good work. He should be, he should run for some kind of office though. He's yeah. got that. He's got yeah. that positioning thing nailed. Like with, he really does. With the best of them. I mean, one of the most interesting practical problems in my mind in the church in America today is how the hell are we going to navigate this purse string power control by conservative older people? Yeah. Faith statements, faith commitments that many staff and pastors don't even agree with many or most faculty at more conservative colleges, you know, especially mm-hmm. universities and stuff and even high schools. You know, it's like there is a, this just massive disconnect right now between very loud and wealthy or influential donors and board members 
and the actual people who do the education work and the pastoring <laughs> work. And it's like, it's a bubble that's going to have to burst at some point. And mm-hmm. uh, I'll be watching that closely, especially after the the Trump fallout and all of that, because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and as, as generational shifts, you know, increase, it'll be really interesting to see how that happens. Yeah. Kit, if I, if I can, I'll speak into that real quick and then I'll throw the last question at you just because Pick your best one. We could, we could keep going forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or we just do a part two sometime because that's fun as well. But I think what's interesting, and this is going to sound really not great and kind of like an asshole thing to say, but I think um, that at least for me, based off my experience working with younger people, um, I myself being one, I'm 26, but then also like high school students and even some college students today, Um, I think once some of the older (laughs) generations quite literally uh, cease to exist, uh, which again, sounds super crass and mean, I don't mean it that way. I just think it's a a, a reality. I think we're going to see some major shifts happen in the church uh, because my like students I have today just don't put up with bullshit. Like they don't buy into that. They're, they're questioning an authority at a much younger age. They're like, hey, I go to school and like I have three teachers that are gay and a bunch of my friends and they're awesome people. Oh, also too, like my one teacher, she's a Muslim and this other teacher I have is Jewish and then my history teacher is atheist and they're all great. So I think I think there's something, at least I'm clinging to some hope <laughs> that some of the younger generations are going to bring something more beautiful uh, to the table in regards to a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I think um, it's also worth saying, Josh, too, like if you're somebody out there looking for a job at a church and you see things in the application process, like here's the description of what this person should be. And every every phrase, every sentence of the 13 bullet points they list start with that they list starts with the word he will be. Don't apply there. Like, I mean, literally don't apply at that church. If you go and you look at pictures on a, on a church website and every pastor is a male and then it says like support staff and then there's women in there. And then you look at all the elders and they're all males. Don't apply there. Like, I mean, seriously, like stop applying to places that you don't like fundamentally agree with. I think that we'll, we'll start to see a shift in that stuff. And then unfortunately, like that reformed church that I worked at first, what will wind up happening is people will start leaving those places. And the only people left, unfortunately, will be the 70s and 80 year old people who eventually literally will die. And there won't be anybody else left there to attend church or give. And then that church will just have to shut down. And we might even get to see a rebirth in that building or of that community or how that would look like. But I think that coming from someone personally who's worked at these churches where it's like all older people with like a small pocket of young people, those old people are so hard to work with that the younger people eventually just leave and go somewhere where they can actually fit in. They don't stay and try to fix it. I mean, they really don't. It just doesn't happen. So like Siri and I both have parents who see uh, faith much more closely to the way that we do. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's fair to say that the boomers really kind of kind of failed us, yeah. statistically speaking, mm-hmm. and that it's going to need to be up to Gen X and younger people to 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 try something else. It's going to be smaller. There will never probably be the kind of cultural hegemony 
of Christianity, of Protestantism that we, that some of us were raised with. And I think Trump has seen to that permanently in America is my guess. Um, but they really, they really did fail us on that score as a generation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what comes next. I'm, I'm like yeah. personally pretty fascinated by it. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be cool to track for sure. Um, well, let me throw this last question at you guys and Siri, I, I want to start with you. Um, if there is a pastor right now of a congregation listening to this episode for whatever reason, they've made it this far. <laughs> uh, what would you want to tell them? Like, how can they better help those in their church who are deconstructing? Um, what do pastors need to know uh, to actually embrace those on this journey rather than pushing them away? Cause I think pushing them away is just, it's not helpful. Your church will literally die. <laughs> because you're pushing away all the young people. So uh, it's the million dollar question and Siri, it rests solely on your answer. So like you have to have the answers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I guess uh, don't push them away is key. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think that creating a community that, me think how I want to say this. A community that's more about Christian practice than belief, about getting the beliefs right, and more about what it means to do Christianity. Whether and that that could be, and that's a tent, that's an umbrella statement to refer to both doing, you know, service to one another to, you know, serving the needs within the church, serving the needs in the community, um, doing justice, and also like spiritual practices, because usually that's something that can can host a lot of different types of thinkers, lots of different types of believers. So, you know, exploring um, spiritual practices in your church and, and leading in that way, um, usually that'll just set the tone for more... Um, plurality of ideas and and thinking and people to just kind of coexist while they're exploring things and other ways to just like open it up to talk about some stuff but you have to do that I think initially in the context of having real relationships with your congregation because instead of just getting up one Sunday and say hey look everybody we're going to talk about LGBTQ or I have a feeling some of you have some questions about hell y'all you know like not doing it that way that's sort of sort of awkward, you know, but being enough in relationship with all of your congregation to where you can maybe host broader Q&A sessions or whatever, like that stuff will happen naturally if you're doing those two things. I think exploring having a culture of Christian practice and being in deep relationship with the people you're serving. Yeah, I, I think that relationship aspect is key and big because I think that um, as a man that's been on the staff at a church and I've been specifically told that it's unsafe for me to form relationships with the congregants that attend my church. It's unsafe to be able to tell anybody anything that I that isn't on staff or doesn't work at a different church. Um, I, yes, that is it, common. And yeah. so it's, I think I think to break that stigma and say form relationships with these people because you need to know what they think and what they are curious about and what they need answers to. And then it's your job to 
help these people understand these things. And I think that goes a long way if someone is deconstructing, that they have somebody that they've looked to before as safe to talk to about those questions where there's a community where they can actually ask questions and not just, it can, it can even be like, you know, I, I just, I just don't feel like Jesus was real. And like, if someone can't ask that question, then every single sermon you teach about Jesus and, you know, him doing this miracle or any of his parables, I mean, none of it applies at all. If they can't ask that question and they have serious doubts about it. Um, and I would be willing to bet, pastors, um, many pastors don't actually have their finger on how many people think that in their congregations that they think they might. Like mm -hmm. more people probably have asked and been curious about that question than, than they really realize. Um, and that's just one example. I'm sure you guys could tell me 80 other questions that people have asked and thought of um, that pastors would be like, I can't believe my congregants don't know this or don't understand this or are curious about this. So I that to me, the relationship thing, that's huge, Siri. For sure. I had a, I was on staff at a church plant in LA for four years and it was explosive and disastrous <laughs> in a lot of ways. There were a lot of beautiful moments. I won't say it's not like it was all bad, but I learned so much about that. We ended up losing the founding planting pastor because of that belief that you can't, you know, even the, I was on staff, there was only a staff of like three and we didn't know what was going on personally with him. And it turns out there was some really, really bad stuff going on with him. And we didn't know about it until he was like, I got a jet, guys, that week, basically. We got to shut the doors here that week. And he was, you know, there were a couple people who kind of knew what was going on, but they were pastors at other churches and other places that he was like meeting with regularly, you know. So it was really harmful and unhealthy uh, situation. Mm. So. Dan, any any closing thoughts on on that idea before we shut things down here? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of like the kind of pastor who would who listens to this show. Uh, I mean, first of all, like if you wouldn't get in trouble, um, you know, as long as it's age appropriate. I mean, I, this website exists for you to share with them, and maybe to offer to read or listen through to something if you have time, and then talk with them about it. Um, another thought I had was just, you know, I, and I, I really feel I have a lot of listeners who are pastors in environments that are more restrictive than their own theology would prefer. And so I really understand that. I, I have a lot of empathy for that. Um, but assuming that you have enough latitude, um, I would say the, another thing to think about is like, check your own feelings on what happens when somebody mentions something. And I'll give an example from myself. I had a, uh, a former guest who I really enjoyed talking to, who I found out considers themselves a Christian atheist. And I kept uh, postponing opening up this conversation because I something about that term like worried me. I wasn't comfortable with it. I still don't know if I'm comfortable with it, but like, is that on them or is that on me? Like, it's a term. Uh, if they describe what they mean by it, I maybe will or won't have a problem with it. And, and who cares if I have a problem with it? They are their own person with their own relationship with God. And, but it's just interesting to note this hesitation on my behalf. And, and the worst thing we could probably do if anyone is in our spiritual care 
uh, is to let our own issues with questions or terminologies or topics actually affect the way that we treat those under our care and make sure that we're not kind of feeling a check in our spirit, air quotes, because of our own crap and not them. Uh, so that's just one more layer that may or may not be applicable. Yeah, sweet. Well, thanks, man. That's good. Um, I think too, I just want to give a shout out. I don't, they're probably not listening, but the, the church that I work at now has put up with so much of my shit. It's not even funny. <laughs> like I'm at an evangelical free church. I don't identify as an evangelical period. <laughs> like, and like I do this podcast with Marty and ask ridiculous questions and they know about it. Um, and they're fine with it. And like, yeah, I, I so kudos to them, you know, That's Mark awesome. and Mark and Jeanette, thank both of you. If you hear this or whatever, I, you know, sincerely appreciate it. Uh, Cause I know they both don't agree with me on everything. Um, and, but they're okay with that. And that's, I think there's something special about that. So thank you to them. Uh, but guys, this has been super fun. I feel like we need to have both of you on again uh, sometime to just, you know, hang out. Cause I feel like we could keep going forever. <laughs> like this is a great conversation and you yeah. guys are awesome. And so uh, we'll definitely link. Uh, so your deconstruction.com in the, uh, you know, in the show notes, stuff like that. Uh, we'll, we'll throw it up on our, our Instagram feed and, and things like that as well. Um, and I'll be sure to share it with, you know, students and, you know, every, everybody that I'm in contact with. So yeah, that's, thanks that's for having show. us. Thank you guys. A really good conversation. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was kind of long. So apologize for stealing so much of your time, but, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> are you guys both in the Baltimore area? I mean, no, Marty's from like Chicago area, which is super oh. lame, you know, but we, <laughs> we pretty- still love him. <laughs> I He's love the-, the Chicago area, but uh, I'm currently in the, the phase of like, well, I'm 36 years old and like I've got young kids and my wife is young and like we kind of feel like the next place we go is going to be where we're going to be forever. And so we're just kind of like, hey, yeah. we'll go anywhere. And we'll do and like not anything, but we'll <laughs> we we have an idea of what we probably should do. So like Chicago is home, but it doesn't have to stay that way. So if you're out there listening and you're like, man, we gotta give this guy Marty a job, you know, just there it is. <laughs> Hire him on the spot right now. We have you have at least my recommendation and approval <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> well, let me and Dan know if you end up in the Pacific Northwest. There you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, well, Marty okay. used to be a lot closer to Dan than he is now. Marty was uh, in Washington State for a while. Oh, okay. For a little bit, yeah. And then he moved to South yeah, Florida, the freaking Oak furthest. Oh, Island. <laughs> oh, Whidbey, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Whidbey Whidbe was awesome, but it's, yeah, it's a cool place. Uh, Thanks, are we still recording or are we just talking? <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're just, so we're just talking. So I'm going to just do our little exit thing real quick. Oh, okay, uh, listeners, thank you guys. Uh, peace out. Much love and go Caps and fuck the Blackhawks. Oh, go Blackhawks. <laughs> go Blackhawks. Just for Marty. That's good. Peace and love, guys. Uh,